This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works or others in the book world about their roles, what those roles entail, and the books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to the individuals that have joined my Patreon group as page turners. I am thrilled to chat books with you and greatly appreciate the support. If you have not joined yet and want to learn more, the link is in my bio. Thank you as well to the wonderful people who have shared about the podcast recently on Instagram and Twitter. MJ of Bookshelf by Beckwith, Jude of NY Judester, Kelly of Kelly Hook Reads Books, Sherry of What Sherry Reads, Brianne of One of a Kindle, author Kathleen West, Ivana of Beaches Books and Bubbles, and Elizabeth of The Bestie Bookshelf. I am eternally grateful for all of you. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring this podcast through December. Today, I am chatting with Elizabeth Letts about the ride of her life. Elizabeth is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The $80 Champion and The Perfect Horse, which won the 2017 Penn Center USA Literary Award for Research Nonfiction, as well as the novel Finding Dorothy. A lifelong horsewoman, she lives in Wyoming and Northern Michigan. I absolutely loved chatting with Elizabeth, and I love the ride of her life. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Elizabeth. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I am great, and I am so, so excited to speak with you about the ride of her life. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. I really enjoyed the book. There is just so much involved in the story, and I can't wait to hear all about it. But before we start, why don't you just talk a little bit about just the basic premise of the story for those that won't have read it yet? Well, this is sort of a grand adventure story. Uh, where you have a woman whose name is Annie Wilkins, who just had fallen on terribly hard times, and she really didn't have anything left except her little dog companion. She'd lost her farm, she'd lost her health, and she had been given two to four years to live. And the only logical thing for her to do was to accept charity and go to live in the county charity home. She lived up in Maine, and the year was 1954. And for some reason, Annie decided that that wasn't the way she wanted to live out her remaining days. And so she decided to try to see if she could live out a dream that had been uh, something her mother had talked about, which was to see the Pacific Ocean. She didn't have a car. She didn't have money for bus fare. Uh, and she knew a lot about animals and she loved animals. So she decided to get herself a horse and take off from Maine with her dog and try to see if she could make it all the way to the Pacific Ocean. That is just so hard to imagine today. And it's probably so hard to imagine then, but it's really so hard to imagine today. Well, it is because. When you think about what the world was like in 1954 when she started out, you have to think about all the things she did not have. So to start out, she didn't have a bank account. She didn't have a credit card, a debit card. She didn't have a cell phone. She didn't have GPS. But even some of the things that she could have had in 1954, which would be a raincoat, a map, or an atlas of the United States, a flashlight. She didn't even have any of those things. So she just kind of took 
off thinking that somehow she could make this journey by figuring it out as she went along. And she didn't even have a map of the United States at all. I mean, she ended up with all these little regional maps as she went, but so she didn't have an idea, okay, here's where I am in Maine and here's where California is and here are one or two routes that would make sense. She literally just headed out and made her way slowly working with these little regional maps. I was completely amazed by that. I was completely amazed by that too. Now, Annie, like a lot of women of her generation, had a sixth grade education. And she would have stayed in school. She she liked school, but she had to drop out because she had to go to work when she was 12, which was true for a lot of people in that era. I know that my mother tells me that her grandmother dropped out of school at 12 to work. And so presumably Annie had seen a map of the United States. Presumably she understood that California was all the way on the other side of the country. But no, she didn't have anything like a route. She she knew how to get to the next town. And eventually she started picking up these regional gas station maps, you know, the old folded papers like the fan that we all navigated with back in the day before we had GPS. But no, she really, she believed that it was possible to figure it out as she went along, which is to me, one of the most fascinating and interesting things about the story. It kind of, I don't necessarily think of the 1950s as being such a long time ago. But if you go back to visit it from the perspective of Annie, you find yourself in this familiar yet oddly foreign environment. One of the things that I really liked about the way you handled the story and the way you told it was that not only did you tell Annie's story as she went along, but you really put so much context into the story, which I loved because I think sometimes exactly what you're talking about, you know, 1954 doesn't sound that far in the past. But when you're able to think about, okay, TVs were just starting to really be regularly in people's homes, things were not being live broadcast very much at all, just some of the different things that were happening at that time period, it does really help you understand, okay, that was quite a long time ago in terms of what we're used to and comfortable with and have at our disposal. Yes. And, you know, I I was attracted to the story of of Annie and, and her horse and her dog because I love animal stories. So it wasn't the time period that drew me in first. But what you do when you're writing a narrative history is that you go and you you have the story, and then you decide that you need to try to build the world around it so that the reader can understand the meaning of this experience or this journey. And in order to do that, I had to go back and look at 1954 to 1956, which really I was not aware of what a pivotal time it was as a bridge between what I think we would call sort of the older, early 20th century way of life and the beginning of of the world that we live in now. So it was just a, a really interesting time. There were TVs, but there weren't broadcast stations. And that started changing right at that time, 1954, 1955. It went from most people couldn't get TV reception and get a lot of shows to most people could. The automobile is the other big thing. So yeah, we had cars, obviously, uh, starting from the beginning of the 20th century, but we really didn't have roads to accommodate them. And by the time you get to 1954, 1955, you have one in six Americans employed in the automobile industry, and you have millions of beautiful, big, fat American cars rolling off the assembly lines looking for a market. So first, you know, you'd have the family car. And many people didn't own cars till people start to move to the suburbs. Well, now you need two cars. Then you start to have the teenager. It's almost like we, in our era, we remember 
the sort of before and after cell phone era, where it seems like nobody had a cell phone and then all of a sudden it was indispensable. That's what was happening at that time with cars. So yeah, it, you just go to that time period and you see the world from Annie's point of view. And I think she felt a lot like we feel sometimes, you know, we've been through a lot of changes, especially with COVID and everything. And we can sort of feel the world changing under our feet. I think that's how a lot how it was for her. And you talk a lot about the highways too. And I was happy that you sort of kept that thread going throughout the book, kind of reminding me, you know, they really weren't these all of these big highways yet. And then fast forward four years, five years, depending on where she was in the country, would really have made a big difference in terms of the roads that were available to her. She encounters construction crews building one of the highways. So I just thought you really did a great job of putting her story truly in context, because sometimes that is a hard thing as a reader to completely place a story with everything else that's happening in the world. And I just thought you handled that very well. And it kind of continued to remind me that was a pivotal time period, but also just everything else that was going on while she was making her journey. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I I think for this kind of true story to be effective and to have readers really get engaged and compelled with the story, it's got to be a story. You know, and you have to be invested in the characters and you need to be following that journey with them. Otherwise, you know, you, you get you get a little bit bored. So you want that history to really seem like it fits seamlessly into the story and helps to make you feel invested in, in the story. I find that to be one of the, the real arts of writing this kind of book is how effectively you do that. I agree completely. Well, how did you come across Annie in the first place? Like, how did you learn about her? Well, it's so funny. I mean, I almost always find my stories when I'm researching something else and then something catches my eye. And that's exactly what happened in this case, because um, I was looking at a 1954 newspaper looking for something else. And in the margins, you know, way below the fold, kind of on the side, there was a very brief article with a photo. And um, it was a photo of Annie. She was riding her horse, Tarzan. And I'd like to kind of paint a visual picture for you for a minute of what this woman looked like. She was five feet tall. She weighed about 170 pounds. So she was kind of a square person. She'd worked all her life. So she was strong. She had cropped gray hair and she wore pretty much everything she was going to travel with clothes wise right on her person. And she was wearing men's clothes, kind of comfortable dungarees, a big hunting jacket, a hunting cap with flaps. She's sitting on this very patient looking brown horse who has got gear tied on him every which way to Sunday, just helter-skelter, everything kind of tied on. And the caption of this photo says, California, here we come. But the dateline of the photo said South Sanford, Maine. And as I looked at the photo, I thought, she thinks she's going to ride to California. She doesn't look like she's going to make it to North Sanford, Maine, much less (laughs) all the way across the country. So I was just, you know, I mean, I was just curious. I thought, who is she? I like horses. And I started digging into her story. And that's how I realized that this was quite an epic tale. It is quite an epic tale. And it took so long. I mean, what, I guess it was from 54 to sometime in 56, right? I mean, it was almost two years, a year and eight months. Yes, yes. So yeah, she took off in Maine of 1954. And she was delayed a number of times along the route for various reasons. You know, and certainly she had some harrowing adventures and some near misses and some setbacks along the way. And sometimes she would just kind of take her time because as she rode from town to town, she was kind of a 1950s viral sensation. 
where people started to follow this journey that she was on. And so people were expecting her a lot of times as before she got to town. And they wanted, I love, I love this spirit of local pride that permeates this book. As she goes from town to town, in each town, people are so eager to show her what it is that makes their small town tick and what's special about it. I agree. I thought it was so much fun to learn about some of these places, you know, through her visiting and what they were like in the 1950s. Me too. And just also, I think one thing that historically I found interesting in this book is you feel the long shadow of the Great Depression hanging over her life and and the lives of a lot of the towns that she passed through. And that was not something I really expected. But what you see unfolding in the mid-1950s is some things are on their way out. Uh, Family farming, which was her profession, on its way out. And then some of the industries that were very big in New England, like the textile industries, industries that were related to the river. She passed through the town of Windsor Locks, Connecticut, which was really fascinating to me because it was a river town that had been making its living with uh, shipping and canals. But then they had airplanes coming in. So after World War II, we all kind of know the story of the suburbs being built and uh, our country being less rural, agricultural, and small town and more urban and suburban. But you really do see that. It's a cusp time where some things are going away and they're not coming back. And as she rides along, she sees a lot of that. I thought that was even interesting when you were talking about the train and how because of the automobile, the train was also on its way out in terms of passenger travel and that that was changing the way some towns were structured or how much more traffic they were going to have or less traffic they were going to have because the train was no longer really taking people places. Yes. And I think, you know, what I what I found fascinating, if you had told me that I would be interested in the history of roads and the interstate highway, I would have said no. I mean, honestly, I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, the freeway was a fact of life. It was already there when I was a kid. And I never really thought about life without it. I honestly feel like I had thought about the railroad, you know, and the Golden Spike and the Union Pacific, because I'm a big reader, more than I'd really ever thought about roads. And as I began to research this book, I thought this was this incredible before and after in our country. The road, the interstate, and the ubiquity of automobile travel and the ability to get from place to place easily changed our country in many, many ways. And Annie was an eyewitness to that. She rode along at her, you know, her three mile an hour pace. And so her observations were absolutely fascinating to me. What did it mean when we built the interstate? That One of the things I thought was super fascinating was the business bypass, which any of us who love road trips are familiar with that. You're driving down the road, you see the name of the little town, and you see, you know, the something business bypass. You could get off the highway and drive into the town. Well, if you're like me, you don't because you're, you're in a hurry and you're trying <laughs> to get where you're going. And so what do you do? You stop at the gas station that's out right off the highway and you drive through the McDonald's or whatever. And whatever charming little downtown and diner and stuff, you never actually see them. Well, what was so interesting to me was that was an unintended consequence of the interstate. Uh, they actually thought the problem was at that time that all the major roads went right through every town's downtown. And so the people who lived in the town would get irritated that there'd be all this traffic cluttering up their streets when they were just trying to go to the grocery store, the post office. So they're like, aha, well, we'll build this very modern thing. We'll do a bypass. And the people who want to eat or stay in a, in a hotel, they'll come into town and give us their business. But the people who don't, who are just passing through, 
we won't have to deal with them. Well, that's not what happened. What happened was people brought the food and they brought the gas stations out to the road. And those towns that were bypassed uh, really, you know, lost a lot of their revenue. And I thought that was really uh, revealing and interesting, you know, unintended consequences. I thought that was really interesting, too, when you talked about that in the book. And I mean, I see that because we road trip a lot. I'm in Houston and we drive to Colorado every summer. And we used to go up on those two-lane roads, kind of through Amarillo, up into New Mexico and straight up. Mm -hmm. But you go through a million tiny towns. And so not only is it annoying to live in those towns and to have all these people coming through, but it's annoying to have to keep slowing down to 25 miles an hour when you're trying to you know, make tracks on your road trip. So we years ago switched to going straight up to Kansas and across. It's all interstate. And it's faster, even though it's like 200 miles longer. It's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I, I was born in Houston. And the first road trip I do remember was my family driving from uh, Houston to northern Michigan, where we go in the summers. And I still have very vivid memories of, of that trip. And I'm sure at that time, a lot of that was back roads. But when I was trying to research this book, one of the things that was so revealing to me, and I should say that what I did is I did retrace every bit of her journey, pretty much. But I, I couldn't figure out where she went. It made no sense. You know, I would put the I would put the points of reference into Google Maps, and it would show me how to get from point A to point B. And I would think she couldn't have gone that way. It doesn't make any sense. So what I had to do was I had to actually go and find. I went to eBay, where you can find anything, including 1950s regional maps of from the gas stations. And when I started retracing her route that way, it made perfect sense. You know, the roads are still there. The secondary roads are still there, but they're just not the way. They will take you way out of your way. And you take the interstate and it's still faster. I loved that you included those maps because my dad worked for Exxon his whole career. So we always had a zillion of those maps and actually still do. And so I was like, oh, that's so fun to see them referenced in there, kind of a little bit of history. And we obviously used them every time we traveled. Yeah. And that's another thing that I thought was really interesting because, you know, me having grown up in the 60s, 70s, it's like I never would have imagined a time where I would want to sort of revisit the gas station map. And yet when you look at them from the perspective of now we obviously use GPS, those maps, they have this really fascinating kind of quality to them. They're like little compendiums of information. Do you remember that, Cindy? I mean, one of them, for example, explained how you could do hand signals if you didn't have electric um, directionals. And they had these grids for the mileage, do you remember, where you would read down uh -huh. to Albuquerque and then across to, you know, St. Louis or something, and it would tell you how many miles and all kinds of tourist attractions. And I really enjoyed them as as kind of pieces of information that were so brought you right to that time. Well, and gave you an idea of where people were getting their information too. And I can remember those grids. And when we'd be mapping out trips, trying to figure out, okay, where's the best place to stop? And you'd be trying to go across and, okay, it's this many miles to this city. It's this many miles to this city. Okay, which of these routes is going to be the best? And not always necessarily knowing because it's harder to tell on those maps, I think, sometimes <laughs> what road is looking better than another road, you know, and certainly yeah. no way to know that there was any construction. Oh, yeah. And and also, I think the thing that struck me the most is if you spread out one of those maps from 1954, and you look at them, they don't tell you which way is better than another, which Google Maps is the opposite, because it tells you how to go, unless you really want to try to force it to make it go another way. But all the little towns, I mean, you could tell there was the red routes and the blue routes. So the, the major roads and the, and the minor roads. 
and they would mark which roads were dirt roads. But beyond that, you really wouldn't look at the map and immediately assume that there was a better way. And so this kind of meandering sort of travel that I've always loved. I mean, I've always been a big fan of travel books and books, you know, about people going out and sort of wandering. Uh, the modern world actually suppresses that that in a way that we actually don't even, I don't think we're so fully aware of uh, how, how we're being pulled away from that kind of travel by accident almost. I think you're right. And a couple of years ago, I read a book, I think it's called Are We There Yet? And he writes about both the automobile and highways and roads and sort of how all of that shifted and the different components like the seatbelt laws coming about and the speed limits and how, you know, how that impacted various things and how it changed what we do today. And I thought about it a little bit as I was reading your book, because again, as you said, highway construction and the way roads developed was not something I would have ever found thought that I would have found interesting, but it's so interesting. It is. I think because it's recent history. So it's a recent enough that we we hadn't really started revisiting it. And it's when you kind of come away from it and then go back to it and you think, oh, oh, look at that. You know, look at that little inflection point where the world was changing. And I'm always fascinated by that, by times, you know, when things are moments in history where you can feel that change kind of accelerating under your feet. And what better way to illustrate it than a woman who sets off on horseback at the at the absolute zenith of the Americans' love affair with roads and the automobile? No, I think that's exactly right. And I loved your author's note where you talked a lot about your research and how you did set out and retrace a lot of her steps. How in the world did you figure out how to retrace her steps, but then also how did you decide what to include and what not to include? I would imagine that when you kind of sat down to write, you could have written a 1,200-page book. Well, for sure. And that's, that's kind of the historian and the researcher's dilemma all the time. And so obviously, this was an interesting, from a craft perspective as a writer, this was an interesting endeavor because this is a trip. And so in a trip, you know where the beginning is and you know where the ending is from a kind of, I guess, a plot perspective. Annie had so many adventures that building kind of drama and, and forward motion into the book did not turn out to be a problem at all. But in terms of sort of what things to talk about, you know, each time she would go to a new place, I would just start digging to see what I could find. And it's kind of like, it is kind of like a road trip. What you experience, you know, you're driving down and you see all the different tourist things and you have to decide which ones you're actually going to go to. Like, I still haven't made it to the Corn Palace in Nebraska, but I, I think that's in <laughs> South Dakota. But I always think, you know, I always think next time's the time I'm going to go to the, <laughs> the Corn Palace. And so it was with Annie. She would ride into a new place and I would start digging and I would find out what I could find about about her visit to that place. Now, when I struck gold, which I did lots of times, I would find somebody who remembered her. I would manage to track down a family that had hosted her and find somebody. And it, it, because of the time lapse, it was always someone who was a young person at the time. And her visit was very vivid to them. And they were just so delighted when I would call people up out of the blue and say, hey, do you know, do you happen to uh, remember this woman? So I mean, <laughs> I don't know if there's a method to my madness. Sometimes I refer to the historian Nathaniel Philbrick, who I, I heard a really fascinating interview uh, that he gave. And he was talking about, he does research, and usually his is a more distant time period in the past. 
and his research, he said that he'll read. And whenever anything, the first time he reads it, if he finds it interesting to himself, he just jots it down because he has found that the things that just sort of spark his interest because they're surprising or unusual tend to be the same thing that readers find interesting. And I have found the same thing myself. You know, if I come across something and I think, oh, you know, I didn't know that. That's actually kind of interesting. Those are the things that I put into my notes. Well, I have to say, I'm cracking up that you mentioned the Corn Palace, because when we started down this road of talking about going different places and trying to decide what to see and what not to see, immediately I thought about our trip to South Dakota and how we did Wall Drug and we did the Corn Palace and then we did the the caves and then we did Mount Rushmore. And then literally like two seconds later, you mentioned the Corn Palace. (laughs) We're on the same wavelength. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. I mean, really, of all the things. I know. Well, I I, I was out there because my last book, Finding Dorothy, um, a, a good chunk of the story takes place in Dakota Territory, uh, which is current day South Dakota. And so I actually was out there. I'm a huge, huge fan of the Badlands, uh, which you didn't mention. But I go to the Badlands whenever I get a chance. And that's my kid's favorite part of that trip was the Badlands. I love that we share. I can just tell, I can hear from the enthusiasm in your voice that we share this, this love of the road trip and, and, and Americana. And, and, I, and I found this book about Annie to be such a perfect way to both tell a story. And I like to tell stories about animals and horses, uh, but at the same time, kind of uh, indulge in this, this interest that I have in this wanderlust. The other thing that I always find interesting is that I'll learn about something that I've never heard about before, like the Lincoln Highway. So Amor Tolls has the book coming out this fall called The Lincoln Highway. And I wasn't familiar with the Lincoln Highway. And then it's in your book repeatedly. And I just think it's so fascinating how you'll learn about something and then all of a sudden it's a variety of places. And I always wonder, did I just not focus in on it before? Or is it just that now it's one of those things that's showing up a lot of places? Isn't that one of the most fascinating things about, I guess, about books and culture? So I really, I'm just a huge fan of Amor Tolls. Um, I've never met him. We once did uh, events back to back. And so I, I was hoping I would get a chance to meet him, but I was out in front signing books while he was, you know, going in the back way to the, the auditorium. But, and I'm really looking forward to reading that book, but I was so fascinated. I was like, the Lincoln Highway, what? <laughs> and, and again, yes so interesting. And I do think that there is, maybe there's just this sense of maybe because of of having had our borders cut for a while and not being able to venture out, I do think that people are really hungry to delve into some of this more recent history in America. And certainly the grand history of the road trip, it's a big part of literature. And it's a big part of the American experience that most of us share. And of course, the world is changing again. And so if you go down to, let's say, my kids, their idea of absolute hell is to get in a car and drive for long periods of time because they're used to flying over, you know? I think that's right. And we kind of split it. We will do some road tripping and then we fly some. But we've done it enough that my kids are used to it and can kind of occupy themselves. And I just think there, obviously, there are plenty of times when it is very nice to fly. But when you have the time, it's so nice to drive because you just find all these places that you've never known about or encountered or seen, and it just really broadens your perspective. It does. And I think one of the things for me, and this is something I thought about a lot as I was writing this book, because I'm used to car travel. We're still traveling at 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. But in the case of Annie, she was going at a, a walk. A horse's walk is about three miles an hour, four miles an hour if they're at a good clip. This country is big. It's just big. 
And you get a really good sense of that when you're driving and you get an even, I'm sure, and I've never ridden a horse across the country, the, the sense of grandeur must have been so intense to her. Well, it must have been. And then also it must have been even grander because of the route she took. <laughs> well, some of the places that I was retracing her her route in, in, especially out west, I mean, she goes across when she's, well, I mean, really by the time she gets, I'd say, to Arkansas and then into Missouri, Kansas. I mean, it was one thing in Maine where, you know, most of those towns were built to be a horse's ride or a walk apart from each other because it was, you know, New England. Uh, you start to get out west. And I mean, if you being from Texas, you know this, those are big distances and you drive a long way without feeling like you see anything. Now, back then, though, of course, the services along the highways, you were on a secondary highway, but they did have more little kind of like one stop grocery store, you know, single pump, maybe you could stay in the little one single little place. So in a way, I feel like Things were a little bit less spread out then in some ways, but even so, all alone with her horse or her horses and her dog and just her own thoughts. I think you're exactly right on there being more types of little mom and pop shops that you could stop at that now have closed. Because my middle daughter and I went to Southern Utah in May and went to Zion and Bryce. And outside of Zion, I mean, for miles when you leave Zion, there are just all of these abandoned, you know, in little kind of clumps abandoned gas stations, abandoned little grocery stores, abandoned buildings. And I kept thinking, this is so weird. Like all of this stuff clearly was all operating at one point, but hasn't been for quite some time. But I bet it's exactly what you're saying is speed limits pick up and people are truly just moving on down the road. They don't need to be able to stop every five miles or 15 miles or whatever it is. Right. I mean, when I was taking this road trip, I became an absolute aficionado of finding and, and trying to find things that used to be something else. And so I, I find those abandoned little two-pump gas stations to be particularly poignant. I don't know. There, there's something, you know, the, and especially the style that things were built in in those days. You also find, well, I'll tell you a story that was one of my favorites from research. When I was down in Arkansas, and I was looking for the place, there's a very pivotal scene that happens in the middle of the book down in Arkansas. So I know she stayed in this motor court, and I'm hoping that maybe I can find it because in Arkansas, the, the road that used to be the principal east-west road is about two miles uh, south of the current interstate. And so if you get off the interstate and you drive along that old road, you, you sort of see all these old, like you're talking about the relics of a, of a different era. So I'm looking for this old motor court, and I'm thinking it's probably not there anymore. But I pull over into this gravel parking lot in, in front of this accountant's office. And the accountant's office is like a little, I don't know how to describe it, just like a little bungalow or something. And I pull out this postcard that has a picture of the place I'm looking for. And as I'm holding it up, I look out my window at the accountant's office and then I look at the postcard. Well, if you can believe it, I realized that the accountant's office was actually the office of this former motor court. And the buildings had just been, uh, you know, they'd been painted a different color and they had been, um, you know, repurposed. But as soon as I looked at the postcard, I had pulled up right in front of it. That is very cool. And I know you mentioned that a little bit in your author's note, not that particular story, but how you were looking and finding some of these buildings repurposed. And I have never paid attention to that. It made me think I'm going to add that to my list when we're road tripping. Oh, just beware because it becomes, it's one of those funny little obsessions. But 
you start to find, uh, you can see the old fire stations, you can see the old, especially a lot of filling stations and, uh, you know, what they called gas stations back then and uh, the motor courts and, uh, you know, some of the L-shaped motels have been made into other things too. So it's kind of a fun, fun thing, road trip thing to do. Absolutely. Another thing that really stuck out to me in your book was that each chapter you had a quote and I was so curious about them and I paid close attention and I wondered, was it hard to choose them? How did you decide what to put? Kind of how did all of that work for you? Oh, I'm so glad you asked about the quotes. I That was really something that was so joyful for me. I love nothing, nothing like a little pithy saying. And I, I don't really remember how I decided that that's what I wanted to do. But I started looking for some kind of a quote that I thought would kind of capture the theme. Each In each chapter, each time that Annie goes to a new place and sort of has a new stage of this journey of hers, different different ideas and themes about either what she was going through or the times started to emerge. And so some of the quotes I knew right away, I just knew what quote I wanted to use. And then other ones, you know, I would start to go looking and think, okay, you know, what would be what would be the perfect sort of succinct way to capture, you know, the the kind of the theme of this upcoming chapter? Well, I loved reading them. And then I loved kind of after I'd read the chapter, figuring out how it connected each time. I thought that was a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read lately that you really liked? Well, I have a book that I have been recommending like crazy. And um, in case it's not on your radar, it is uh, a novel. It's a debut novel. And it's a book that I was given to write a blurb for. So, you know, we get we get novels, we get lots of books that are passed along to us. And if I say something nice about it, it means that I genuinely liked it. But this one came along to me and I started reading it. And it wasn't like that. It was like I forgot everything and couldn't get up from my chair for two days. Read it all pretty much in one sitting. Uh, the name of the book is The Girls in the Stilt House. And the author's name is Kelly Mustian. And it's a story of two teenage girls uh, who live down in the Natchez Trace, Mississippi, in the 1920s. One's black, one's white, and they're kind of thrown into this very difficult situation where they have to cooperate with each other, even though they come from sort of wildly different situation. The book is beautifully written, and it brings alive a time and a place that I wasn't too familiar with. But it's also so well constructed that it just urges you to turn the pages. I mean, it's really got a complicated, very tight plot that just makes you kind of want to know what's going. So I could not possibly recommend that book enough. The other one that I am really enjoying that I'm halfway through right now is Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. I have that one, and I haven't started it yet. It's very good so far. I'm really enjoying it. Good. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I'm just thrilled to pieces that we got to talk about the right of her life. Well, thank you so much for having me. And it was really a fun conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.